If you think that your custodial staff or your food service staff don't have some powerful relationship with your students, you ain't been paying attention. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited because we get to speak with people who are doing amazingly innovative things in the world of transformative education. And today is um, no different. Uh, Today we're going to be actually talking about student-led restorative practices. And joining us today for that conversation is A.J. Crable, who is the author of the book Great on Their Behalf, which I think um, says it all. Um, Just a little bit to set the stage uh, about this piece of work. Uh, AJ uh, believes that student outcomes don't change until adult behaviors change. And I think that sets the stage beautifully. So AJ, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. So first and foremost, AJ, let's help folks who don't know understand what is this concept, student-led restorative practices? Yeah, two different pieces of this, the student-led part and the restorative practices part. On the restorative practices side, this is really about a juxtaposition of the normal narrative that most schools across the country have when there are behavior issues is that they will immediately move toward a retribution-focused model. It's really geared around who did what wrong and what is the appropriate punishment associated with that bit of wrongdoing. In a restorative approach to behavior, we're looking at who created what harm and what actions will they be taking to repair the harm that they've created. This is a really important distinction for several reasons. One of those is that the retributive approach, if we follow that logic, there is almost no escape from the chronic absenteeism that that helps create, is that we're going to have a lot more students who are spending a lot more time out of school. And if our theory is that when we send them home for five days, that they will spend that five days in constant meditation and discernment around the nature of their behaviors and the disruption it might cause, and they will return to school with a commitment to uh, change their ways. Like if that is our belief, I'm concerned about our lack of being in touch. Say reality check, right? Because what I see instead is it often becomes a really great opportunity uh, to level up my Fortnite character and to really uh, get more skilled in uh, Battlefront. And so the challenge is not only are we missing instruction on time, not only are we creating a more tenuous connection with the learning community, but we're not actually building a skill set that will allow for there to be a greater likelihood of success on a go-forward basis. And so there are pros and cons. I'm not actually an absolutist. I'm not 100% against 
the retributive, retributive approach to discipline. Uh, I, I certainly believe that there are times I have personally been responsible for expelling students from school. And while I'm not proud of that, there was decisions that I would make again. You bring a loaded weapon into my school, I will in fact choose the safety of the other students. But that is so far on the fringe of behavior that instead of calibrating our entire discipline program around that end of the fringe, I'd rather calibrate in the other direction where I believe restorative actually does make more sense. In fact, in my last district, my current one, we actually looked at data over a five-year period to try to figure out of our four-tier disciplinary system, you know, little AJ, um, you know, yelled at somebody, little AJ pushed somebody, little AJ punched somebody, you know, tier four, little AJ brought a weapon. As we looked over a five-year period, we almost couldn't find an example of a tier four infraction of a student bringing a weapon that wasn't preceded by a tier three, a tier two, a tier one infraction. In the insight that emerged for me out of that was that behavior is a form of communication and that our students are communicating things to us at an early enough level that often we can, if we can hear that, that we can try to figure out what can we do? How can we engage in a way that prevents escalation? Obviously, that's not universally true, but my experience has been that it is the vast majority of the time true. That if there are situations that we can engage with at the tier one level, we can actually prevent things from escalating into a tier four level. The The other thing that this points to is that in addition to having students be in school rather than out of school, we're actually then preparing students for the day when they are entirely out of school. Because one of the things that I've noticed is that annoying humans don't stop being in your presence just because you graduate high school. When you go to college, there will be more annoying humans there. And when you graduate college or wherever life takes you, there will probably be more annoying humans there. And so having the real tool set around, hey, these are folks who just rub me the wrong way. These are people I don't enjoy, but they're also coworkers. They also are in my family. <laughs> they're, they're also in my neighborhood. They also attend my church. Part of being successful as an adult is being able to navigate the reality that, yeah, not everybody's going to be your cup of tea. And those are just skills, and they are very teachable. And the challenge is that a retributive approach to discipline doesn't seek to teach those skills, whereas a restorative approach does. It says, what are the behaviors that aren't working? What harm are they creating? And what can that student do if they're willing to take responsibility for it to repair the harm? So that's the restorative practices side of it. Um, and then the restorative practices work that I train in, there are really three separate uh, tools that we use, community circles, which are really preventative in nature. This is how are we just creating a space of connectedness on a daily basis. You know, nothing's happened. There's no conflict. This is just how we do schools. We're constantly looking for excuses to create a sense of connection and belonging for students. Uh, the next is mediation circles. You know, we've got a conflict. Uh, we haven't, there's no rules violation yet. No norms have been violated, but, but there is a conflict. Conflict is a healthy and natural part of the human experience. And the question is, how are we providing students tools to be able to successfully engage in the context of those conflicts? And then the third one is restorative circles. This is when rules have in fact been violated. And what is it that students are willing to do to take ownership for the harm they created? And what are they willing to do to repair the harm? So that's the 
restorative practices side of it. But that's actually not, for me, the most exciting element. For me, the most exciting element is actually the student-led side of it. Uh, I, I'm not opposed to restorative practices, but I'm not an adherent of them either. I'm an adherent of student-led restorative practices because the person who is leading those conversations is the person who is learning the most. And so if instead of having adults lead those community circles, mediation circles, restorative circles, why don't we have students uh, lead those? And so that's the nature of the work is I, I want students to have skills to be successful in whatever they choose to do after they leave out of my building. And wherever they go, I want them to have enough tools in their toolbox to be able to negotiate whatever life throws at them. And this student-led restorative practices uh, as a strategy for accomplishing that um, that I'm excited to be able to share with students uh, here in Columbus. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, I'm super excited about this because like you, I, I feel, I feel so often that we discount the kids that we're supposed to be serving. It seems to be a natural adult reaction to adulting. You know what I mean? It's an odd thing, but, and we'll dig into that in a minute. I, I've got two questions before we go there. So the, the, the first one um, really sort of stands around, and I guess it's more of an opinion. So I'm going to put you on the spot here just yeah. a minute. I think that sometimes one of the things that happens when we think about a whole host of a community that is a a school. We'll, we'll, we'll use a high school as an example. And I, and I often feel like one of the things that has happened when there are a, a lot of, and maybe discord's not the way to think about it, but there's, there's, there's a level of dysfunction. And even in the, the most best functioning environments, there's still a large level of dysfunction. And I think that oftentimes when I sort of stand back with my anthropology hat on and say, why do I think that this is happening? One of the things that I often see as we start to peel the layers back is the, the, the individuals, the students in particular, are not being seen. Right? We, we, we don't necessarily hear as adults, but I think that often we choose not to see. And I wonder if because we set up this odd artificial dichotomy in this environment that is in many ways artificial anyway, that we are we sort of exacerbating the way that students are feeling unseen, unheard, and therefore leading to some of the, the sorts of social issues that sometimes as adults, we start to label as things that are happening in schools? Yeah. So at one level, I, I don't think we could, if we're being intellectually honest, none of this should be much of a surprise. The, what we've seen everywhere else in human experience is that power seeds nothing without challenge. And so there is a power dynamic in most of our school systems Students don't vote for who is running that school system. Students have no say in who the teachers are, the principals are, the superintendent, and certainly have no say in who the school board is. And so in the absence of that, I think it's very easy for the interest of those who are afforded the vote to hold sway. I mean, this is frankly the core thesis of my entire book, and I've been heavily criticized for this opinion, but I stand by it, that we see 
school systems have migrated into being intensely focused on adult inputs rather than being intensely focused on student outcomes. And where the two overlap and work together well, then great. But if there is a competition uh, that the needs of adults, the desires, the passions, the interests of adults certainly are most likely to hold sway. And that to me can't be particularly surprising because we see that in almost every other aspect of our society, that where there is a significant power imbalance, the power is not necessarily and intrinsically concerned with the concerns of well-being of those who are not in power. It is generally concerned with its own well-being and with the maintenance of its own authority and autonomy. And so it really takes an intentional act of thoughtfulness to notice Students don't have a voice in the system by design, uh, not by accident, by design. Students don't have a voice in the system. What would I have to do as a school system leader to actually artificially inject into our system them having a voice where the system is designed for them, in fact, not to have a voice? And there's actually a group of students who I'm super stoked about. I, I sadly think they will fail. But there are students all across the country who are increasingly pushing back and are pushing legislation. I'm thinking one really amazing young lady, she was on the school board, a student school board member uh, in Salt Lake, who actually wrote her own legislation and took it to the state assembly to um, add student school board on member onto the board, not by the grace and generosity of the board, but by statute, and to give that student an actual vote on the board. There are students actually right now who are pushing for the same thing, uh, being led by a coalition of students uh, in, in San Diego, trying to push this in California as well. Um, and this idea that students want a voice, desire a voice, uh, that's real. But the system is a design. It's not set up for that. And so where it happens, it only happens by the good grace and the kindness and the beneficence of adults who see a value in that. And that certainly is the nature of the places where I'm working to help instill student-led sort of practices where adults are saying we are actively going to cede authority over behavior, that the first tier of behavior intervention won't be the assistant principal. It'll actually be a group of students who we are entrusting with the authority to make very serious types of decisions about what happens when behavior norms are violated, that we, we're going to entrust that to students. That is, in a lot of ways, a fairly radical stance. Well, and how do you, which gets me to my next, my next question, how do you, and maybe the answer is you don't, AJ doesn't, but, but students who've, who've been through this work and systems that have said, yes, we are going to go all in and give these students this opportunity to participate. You know, this is not going to be an easy lift, eh? We know that. But more importantly, there's going to be so many adults who are going to say, oh, heck no. Right? How, how, do you, how do you turn that tide? I mean, part of it is finding the folks, to your point, these amazing leaders who's like, nope, we're going we're gonna to do this thing. I am willing. And if I'm willing to, 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 to demonstrate and show by this that we're going to put this into place, we're going to go through the training, we're going we're gonna to embrace this as our, our new norm in our, in our ecosystem that we're going to own, our system that we're going to tweak. But what about all of the places and the folks that are just not willing? And I and I and I recognize that's that 
that's that's a lot, and I'm not expecting you to have the answer to that, but what do those conversations look like? Because I can only assume that as you've gone through this journey and this work and you've been invited in places and, and the adults think, hey, I want to do this, but you get there and you realize, oh, no, 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 they're not ready. I have no doubt whatsoever. Yes. Can, you, can you turn that tide into some, and what is that? I mean, I guess the, the, the bigger sense of my question is how the heck do you get the adults on board? Well, so part of the challenge, and I think this is just part of the nature of being human, is that it's hard to imagine that which I've never seen. And it's hard to feel a safe sense of safety and security trusting in something that I have literally never seen. And so my day job is I've got to be responsible for all these children, but you're telling me that now I don't have authority over behavior, that that's been outsourced to children. Like that... That sounds really scary. Threat. What yeah. do you think? AJ. Yeah. <laughs> so what I'm thinking is this is actually an amazing deal for teachers. And and that's part of I think what's had teachers at the four high schools here in Columbus that I'm working with on fire for this work is I think they've kind of gotten it. But part of how they're getting there is they're helping adults overcome the I can't imagine what this looks like phenomenon by creating opportunities for adults to see it for themselves. And, and that's my number one response to your inquiry is that, cre- that we have to be actively creating opportunities for adults to see what exactly it looks like for students to do this work and for students to be at the table and be in a leadership role and see what they do with it. I, I'm so unbelievably proud of a group of my students who recently went with a group of their teachers to the school board meeting. And they led a community circle there and really pulled the board into that conversation. It was this powerful and emotional um, and just kind of heart-stirring example of students really leading a conversation that was deeply impactful and deeply meaningful and, and expressed a sense of wisdom and capacity that once seen can never fully be unseen. And so that's, that is the strategy that I would most prescribe for your question is, what are ways that we can help folks see it? So then that demystifies it. It takes some of the fear factor out of it. I think it makes it easier for reasonable folks to now have a reasonable conversation around. But if I've never actually seen it, and now you're telling me we're just going to do that and sight unseen, like that seems a bit much. And so the fact that we're starting with just the coalition of the willing, um, when they asked me to come and do this, I said, well, the first thing we're not going to do is we're not going to roll this out disrequired. What we're going to do is we'll put out an application. And the folks who apply will start with the coalition of the willing. And I think 13 of the high schools applied. It was like, we, we can't do that many. <laughs> we can't do that many. So we, we've got four high schools that we're doing. And I am so excited about the work that they're doing, but it's already started to inspire. As other people have seen these students are doing, we've got videos that are on YouTube now, and people are just blown away. Now we've got other high schools are calling, hey, hey, hold on. When, when, when do we get in? We've got the middle school principals of the ravenous ones. They're blowing up the phones like, hey, hold up. Uh, when when can some of these high schoolers come and work and train my middle schools? It's like that is definitely coming to a middle school near you. But first, 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 we've got to really solidify it in the four places where we've got to make sure it works. We've got to make sure that we're proficient at it, that we have the ecosystem worked out. Uh, the the thing I, I hate is when a school system says, "Hey, students, here's this great thing we got for you," and then we pull it away from them because the adults couldn't get our couldn't get our systems together. And so I want to make sure that we actually have this right. 
But then once we've demonstrated efficacy with this, absolutely. Let's have high schoolers train the middle schoolers. And then once they get up and running, have middle schoolers train the elementary students. Um, and, and when you have a school system where people see what it looks like for students to step into their own power, step into their own capacity, their own wisdom, then I think powerful things become possible. Absolutely. And I love the near peer mentoring sort of mentality of this. I mean, you know, kids learn so much from each other. That's the best. So thank you uh, for that. Um, I am super, super curious about the, like, not so much the process pieces, but I want to, before we evacuate the sort of system question, and then I want to get into the actual how you do some of the work pieces, but from a system standpoint, um, I know that you go and you do specific work with school boards, the leadership element at a district sort of level to be ready to say, we're going to try to implement this thing. That's tough too, because school boards are their own dysfunctional system in and of itself, right? And you know, oftentimes um, when you really peel back, you see systems within systems of dysfunction that have sort of caused some of the the elements of disarray that we might have going on. Um, But that leadership component is is key, right? Um, As it relates to being able to get the vast majority of the adults to even get to the point where we can have a coalition of the willing, we have to be willing at a bigger level to say, let's do this thing. Um, how do you, how do you navigate that piece of the conversation? And then I want to get into the weeds of the work itself because that I've seen so many, I guess here's the reason I'm asking this question. I've seen so many transformative initiatives, right? And they're by and large a disaster. And often the reason they're a disaster is because they were either mandated from on high and we never got to a coalition of the willing at the ground where the work is actually happening, or um, the ground is willing to do it, but leadership won't support the long-term sustainability capacity building that's necessary to say that when AJ leaves this project, it has a life of its own. How do you how do you navigate that piece so that you can even start the work? Yeah, actually, Columbus is a oddly perfect example of how to do this. And this isn't the only path by any means, but it's a pretty strong path that we've accidentally stumbled into. So I really first came in to town because the school board reached out and said, hey, we're looking for some coaching. We just want to level up some of our governance work. And From just general school board. Yeah, yeah just, just super general school okay. board stuff. And kudos to them for just really having a heart for their own continuous improvement. Um, and then actively reaching out and saying, we'd like somebody to come in and support us. And so I'm uh, incredibly proud of any school board that is willing to publicly say, we want to get better on behalf of the students we serve. And that's certainly the message uh, that brought me into communication with the board here. As they were going about establishing their priorities, one of the priorities that surfaced that they ultimately adopted really pointed in the direction of restorative practices. This is critical because now what you have is a mandate from the boardroom that restorative practices be occurring throughout the school system. And it doesn't go so far as to stipulate what it looks like or how it's done or uh, all those things. It gives a little bit of a shout out to a timeline, but really it is this value statement that the board has stood on and has stood very firmly on saying this 
what we want for our students is for them to know and be able to do all these things. One of the values that we strongly hold is that this be in the mix for how we get those things done. So I share that because very often you don't have that type of top level buy-in. And then because they, the superintendent invited me to come in and help pilot the student-led restorative practices work, and I only was willing to do it if we put out an application. We only, if only one high school had applied, we would have just done one high school. But I'm, but I wasn't willing to try to force this anywhere. That people actually had to say we want to do this, and then I selected among the people who wanted to do this. That in that moment you had, for, for, in a hierarchical sense, the folks from the front lines of the organization, uh, and the for all the way from the classroom all the way to the hierarchical you know, lead of the organization in the boardroom, both pushing in the same direction. The challenge that I run into organizationally a lot of the times is that schools may desire to do this, and teachers particularly will see that this is something that would make a lot of sense for their students. Uh, but there, there are a lot of things in the system that has to change, and there are resources that have to be allocated in order to pull this thing off. And so if teachers by themselves get fired up for it, that's usually not enough because the resources, unfortunately, tend not to be motivated exclusively by that. And so having it simultaneously, the passion of our educators in the classroom and the passion of our education policy leaders in the boardroom uh, come together in synthesis, I think is a, a real exemplar for other folks that is helping cut through a lot of the red tape. There are real funding questions, but because there is board and superintendent level support for the work, a lot of those questions aren't as nearly as fear factors as they might be otherwise, because nobody's asking, is this work that the board or the superintendent cares about? Now people are asking is, to what degree will that caring be made manifest? But that is a much less scary question than, are they fundamentally misaligned with what we see that we need to do here in our building? And so that is just a real uh, powerful story for others to consider that if there is a way to be having the classroom, the boardroom move and sync on this particular issue, uh, I suspect that's going to be a real winner, not only here in Columbus, but uh, in other places as well. Yeah, that's absolutely key to being able to figure it all out, right? Um, and the, the resource allocation, I, I think I appreciate very much you bringing that up because, again, it's another one of these things that I've seen is, you know, folks do get jazzed up. And so um, just, you know, before we transition into the next piece of the conversation, just really quickly, from an administrative standpoint, what, what, what's the resource allocation that one needs to be thinking about? Yeah, the biggest expense without question has been substitute teachers and stipends for staff. So the things that fuel training. If you're going to train teachers during the year, that means that you're still paying them to be teachers, but now you also have to pay a sub to come and cover the classroom. If you're paying them outside of the school year, uh, then there's probably some type of stipend associated with that. And so you, it's only fair to compensate our teachers for their time, you know, asking teachers to work for free is really painfully disrespectful. And so the single biggest expenditure that Columbus is experiencing right now is how do we cover the cost of staff time in the form of stipends and how do we cover the cost of staff time in the form of subs? Um, but once, and, and that's ongoing because every year you're going to have new teachers and, you know, new folks, uh, new uh, staff members because 
my coaching is you have to train everybody in the building. So if you are a body in the building, then you should be trained. Um, and so today, in today's workshop, I think we had counselors, teachers, security officers. In a future workshop, hopefully we'll have you know, more teachers, but then you know, custodian, food service, maintenance, you name it. If, if you're, you're in the building, this is for you. And in fact, one of the security officers uh, said today as we were closing out our session uh, during the training I was leading, that this was the first time he's been been in the work for a long time. He said, this is the first time I've ever been in a all day, and in this case, a two-day training with teachers. Like we are normally left out. And he, he expressed kind of like this real sadness around that. Um, and people's like, wow, really? He's like, yeah, we are never considered. We are just as much a part of the educational experience for these children. We are not classroom teachers and we get that that's special, but we're here too. And, and we're never seen. Uh, that, that, that was his testimony. I was like, you know what? I, I, I hear you on that. In this work, we need every single person in the building engaged in this work because every single person in this building is going to interact with students and you never know which interaction is going to be the one that's transformative. And so that's, that's, that is the biggest expense is the cost involved in saying we're training every single member of our, of our team. Like the costs associated with that are, are the heftiest. Absolutely. And thank you for that because, again, over and over again, every single adult in that environment, every single one, uh, I love that, has to happen, has to happen. If you think that your custodial staff or your food service staff don't have some powerful relationship with your students, you ain't been paying attention. Exactly. That right there. You're not paying attention because... Every adult matters in that space because they do have an influence on what's going on without question. I love that piece of the conversation. So thank you for bringing that up. So thank you, AJ, very much for um, spending time helping us sort of set the stage for our conversation about student-led restorative justice. I appreciate so much. This is a two-part series. And so join us next week where we will continue the conversation and AJ will actually um, help us get into the weeds about the student experience side of this. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.